The two ends of the spectrum here are performance and learning. On one hand, performance encourages you to seem like you've achieved the objective, even if there were failing and learning in the middle, but you essentially obscure the failings to focus on what you've achieved. Whereas learning really takes the time to examine the things that didn't work and understand why. Because of the nine types of failure that Amy Edmondson outlines, seven of them are praiseworthy. Seven of them should absolutely be encouraged. And it's, it's only kind of abject dereliction of duty, like way down at the, at the bottom end, that's really blameworthy. So most failures are really worthy of praise and celebration because of the learning that can be gleaned from them. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss, show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. Today, I'm talking with a friend that I picked up from my networking days, badass business owner, James Heaton. James is the founder of Tronvig Group, a brand strategy and management consulting agency in Brooklyn. And I'm not going to tell you any more because you're going to hear plenty listening to this episode because when James and I get together and chat, we have quite a bit to say. But what I will say is that I did meet so many branding people in those early networking days. And yet James really stood out to me. And because of that, we actually became friends and colleagues and we saw each other regularly. And I think it's because I just really like the way he thinks. I respect his thought process and his approach. And back when we met, I think I was still trying to understand exactly what branding was. So I really looked up to him and learned a lot from his decades of experience in this. So James and I are going to chat about all kinds of topics today, and I know you'll enjoy them. So buckle up. Here we go. Hi. How you doing? It's been years. <laughs> so it yeah. seems, yes. How are you doing? Well, all things considered, pretty good. I think that between... Now and the last time we spoke, I nearly died. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you said in your email, I'm looking forward to hearing that story. <laughs> so you're alive? I am alive. Yeah. That, so yeah, near death is a, is, is a thing that one goes through on occasion. I had one in Tibet when I was 19 and got altitude sickness and dysentery kind of at the same time alone in sort of the oh northern reaches of Tibet. And I didn't know that I was going to get out from that. So that was the first time. And then the last time was last year with basically post-operative complications from major surgery that I didn't realize that I'd ne nearly died until my doctor sort of offhandedly told me after the fact, oh, and by the way, had you not been as healthy as you were, you probably would be dead. Wow. Was the surgery supposed to be dangerous or is it just hospital? It was major death? surgery, but nothing life-threatening. It was actually a mm -hmm. rare post-operative complication that left me in the hospital for 34 days. I lost oh my God. about 40 pounds. I was an intravenous, you know, food and all of that. So I was basically like a lump of flesh, like hooked up to, you know, wires. And yeah. Yeah. And in extraordinary pain. <laughs> Oh my God. So, so yeah, that was wow. the other thing, like how much pain one can tolerate over an extended period of time. Uh, Why was there so much pain when they count well, these meds? Yeah. I mean, I think certain types of pain don't really 
respond well to those meds. All they do is make you feel better about your pain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, you know, at least for me, they didn't actually make the pain go away. It's, it's more like uh, making you able to sleep or uh-huh. kind of having a positive attitude. That's what morphine does, basically. You, you probably don't know how much more pain you could have been in. I've had that experience. <laughs> I had well, a yes, C-section. And once I, I said, oh, no, I actually don't have that much pain. They said, oh, well, when the meds stop, you'll see. Yeah, the doctor said, you know, because I have a, I got a gash like this long vertically along my stomach. And I said, well, so does this give me bragging rights with respect to a C-section? Section? He said, yeah, yeah, okay. that one, that one's about the same you know, the, the different direction, but yes. Yeah. Jeez. I'm sorry. I mean, congratulations. No, I did. Yeah. It's not. You're alive. I think, you know, we all deserve a bit of struggle. I think it makes us better. It makes us more empathetic. I deeply, deeply appreciate those people, particularly those among the hospital staff who were downtrodden and overworked, who still found space in their imagination to be helpful to me, even though it wasn't formally their job, like the cleaning staff who gave me sort of moral support in the middle of all that. And, you know, and who had just gotten the assignment of the whole floor, which was far more work than she was really supposed to be doing and had sort of physical struggles of her own. And yet, you know, she saw fit to reach out and help me. Uh, So that's extraordinarily humbling. So, okay, near-death experience, over a month in the hospital, what changed? Uh, well, actually, a few things. The, my trust in my team and in the business to run itself without me, that changed. Also, the recognition that I'm not really, in my own mind, very valuable unless I'm being useful to others. There was a section of that time while I was in the hospital, while I was still very sick, when I felt pretty good and I started taking work calls and doing some consulting. And it was extraordinarily, I don't know, invigorating and Mm. sort of self-affirming that I could still be useful. So the the worst part was just not, you know, literally being a drag on the universe by sort of sucking in, you know, electrical power or whatever and giving out nothing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just taking air and giving nothing in return was was very disheartening. And so just the capacity to be valuable and of use was something that I didn't realize how much it mattered until it had been taken away nearly entirely for a stretch. You know, I wasn't interested in entertainment. I wasn't, I, I wasn't interested in sleep. I didn't get very much. Hospitals are not really set up for sleep. I was at, 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 some, at one stretch there, I was getting like two, two, two hours or less a night. For, Doesn't like, make any sense. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. All you need is rest. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that sense that, uh, that the team was taking care of things and that the clients were being well served. We lost no clients and we kept our schedules really without, without me. So they stepped up at, at in, in every direction that needed stepping up mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, left the few things that uh, only I could do to, to, to after. And so there was slight accommodation on the, on the client's part for that, but 
really just a matter of scheduling and not in terms of ultimate sort of delivery of value. So that was extraordinarily inspiring to know that I was that we were in a place where that was possible. And so it's kind of timing from a timing perspective. I figure, you know, it's never a great time to nearly die, I suppose, but it, it was a pretty good time as far as <laughs> just the cycle of the business and the fact that we weren't understaffed or under capacity or inadequately prepared. Well, how big is your staff right now? Uh, seven full-time, 10 all in. Okay. Um, so at one point, you said this. I don't know if you remember you said this to me. You said about six, six people's the hardest number of people to make a profitable agency out of. Do you remember saying that? Probably the hardest <laughs> in my experience, right? The yeah, because you're you don't have much redundancy, right? You don't have people who can who are truly good at other people's jobs. I I would like to be large enough so that there's a kind of cultural richness. That's another problem with so few people, right? So you you have the internal cultural dynamic is so dependent on each individual that you, you know, enter person X who has some personality characteristic and that throws the balance of everything off. Whereas, you know, in a 15-person firm or something where it's a little larger, that the impact of any given individual is is... Is, is not diminished, but it's absorbed more easily mm. within. Diluted. The, yeah, diluted <laughs> in the richness of the yeah. culture. So you have people who are representing a shared position, like the creatives have a team, a sub-team, essentially, like a unit that mm -hmm. that has its own dynamic. And so the the clash between the sort of the creative and the and the productive, uh, you know, is, is not as tense or as acute, I think. So, so I think, yeah, six is tough because everyone has their own kind of spot on this and a, uh, an imbalance is felt by the whole team kind of, uh, almost immediately. Would you also say, because each person is so critical to holding everything up, you really have to, you can't, I mean, you yeah. might be the only person who can extract yourself. It's like having too few clients. Yeah. You know, just too few of anything. It's like in statistics, like you have a small number, the variability yeah. is just going to be extraordinarily high, right? So, so, so the adding a little bit of, in this case, it sounds sort of, it's not really volume, but richness, I think makes things easier. And then there's the difficulty of the cultural continuity as you grow. Like 15, I think, is another inflection point that mm -hmm. we've seen with our clients, as is 150 or even you know, 75, 150. So there's all these places where the formal means of disseminating the culture have to change. You know, an entirely informal dynamic dependent on one person's personality only takes you so far. And you need to formalize that through like a clearly defined set of core values, practices with respect to, I don't know, rituals within the organization that reinforce them and, you know, behaviors that are learned by all new entrants into the, into the business. And when you're a tiny micro business, you know, all of that happens without thinking. Mm -hmm. So the, the degree of sort of intentionality and thoughtfulness that that requires increases, it scales up at each of these sort of size and scale inflection points. So when we think of our clients, we also 
think of them not in terms of revenue, but in terms of how many people they employ. Uh, well, you help your clients figure this is a big part of what yes. you do for them. How do you do it in your own company? And, and would you say yours is a, I mean, seven and 10, 10 is inching towards 15, seven is really close to six. So which one are you? <laughs> right. Well, we're, t- yeah, if you, if you kind of put people that are not full-time together, yeah. we, we sort of a, 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 we come up to about 10 and I'd like to be at 15 because I think that's, that's the maximum size when you can still be one team essentially kind of naturally mm-hmm. where it's or there's, a, there's an organic capability of being kind of a single team but yeah i mean our largest client has right now 14,000 employees and we're doing this work with them actually specifically i had a workshop with some of their senior leaders this morning kind of working out how they're going to translate their core values into operational behavior and their daily decisions and what the implications of that are on on the culture. And you asked, well, how well do we do this in our own firm? And of course, n- nothing that we do well out in the world, we do well for ourselves. <laughs> I didn't ask how well you did. I just asked how you did it. <laughs> because, you know, you're, you you're, heard well. <laughs> you're, 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 you're always sort of, you know, terrible at self-medication. Sure. You know, just like a doctor shouldn't prescribe medicine for him or herself. And yet I find that to be one of the most valuable exercises to do the thing you do for others for yourself. Oh, absolutely. And so holding yourself accountable for the advice that you give to others is something that you should constantly strive to do. But I will say that it's not impossible, but nearly impossible with some some outside intervention. So you need help. Mm Mm-hmm in doing that. So you have to have the wherewithal to recognize that you, even if you're great at it with someone else's organization, you're not going to be great at it with your own. So, so yeah, our brand is a mess. We don't, you know, we, we don't have the singularity that we demand, the simplicity that we demand of our clients and that we force them to achieve. We of course have not achieved for ourselves. And every time we try, we sort of get into this you know, knock down, drag out kind of debate around, you know, something that I think a lot of small businesses struggle with. And that is fear at the, at the core of it. But beyond that fear is actually the reality that a certain kind of having your toe dipped in a, a few different ponds is actually protective of business in the natural kind of ebb and flow of work. So until you've found that one true thing that you are better at than anyone else in the world and can sort of deep dive into sort of a really, really rich and deep expertise that is still wide enough to sustain itself through kind of economic turbulence, then you have to have your kind of a couple different things because they ebb and flow. And it's really hard to predict how that happens. And, I, and, and what that means, unfortunately, for a lot of small businesses is that that sort of backstop means that they're doing work that they shouldn't be doing. That's really poorly use, you know, using their time ineffectively, delivering less value than, than, than their clients might obtain elsewhere, in fact. And yet that protects them, insulates them from just the variation that, that, that the economy is necessarily going to put on everybody. Well, they think that protects them. I mean, oh, I, it doesn't I really. think yeah, you're right. it's debatable. <laughs> it's a, that's a, so, so this debate rages, yeah. of course. And I, and I can look at another organization and say, look, you should really quit doing that because you're not that good at it. And 
it's sucking up energy that should be applied elsewhere. And you're attracting clients that you shouldn't really have because they're not going to love you as much as they need to love you in order to Mm -hmm. be your advocate. And, you know, just stop that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But of course, turn that around and apply it to yourself. And don't want to. (laughs) I'm with you. I mean, I'll admit right now I'm having a similar problem. And actually for a, a period of time, I did go really deep and singular and it was working great. And in fact, to this day, when I speak to people, that is the thing. I I can't shake it. I wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I am badass branding and that's my thing and everybody gets it. And it's for, you know, and I'm struggling with this because, well, I don't want to be badass branding anymore, (laughs) you know, for a bunch of reasons. (laughs) So, well, that's the next next challenge. And that is <clears throat> packaging, productizing, and moving on. And how yeah. how much of the kind of work that we do can be bottled. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and also when our businesses, look, even with, you know, 10 people, your business is still, it's still you, mm. James. Even when you're not there, it's so you. And I want to talk about your brand a little bit because, you know, I just like went to, I was, I don't know when you redid it, but you've redone it since I saw it. But I have my own brand of you in my head. Right. I'd be curious. We know know what what a brand. Yeah, we should we should talk about it because because you're one of the few people that I send people to without reservation and often tell them you probably can't afford him or you shouldn't be able to afford him. I don't know what if (laughs) how, you know where he is at this point, but, but one of the few people that sticks out in my brain and that, and that I will send people to and, and mention because, but it's, but you have stuck there for the reason, for whatever the brand is that's in my head that has stayed memorable. I mean, it's not just that, obviously, like we have known each other for a long time and I trust you and I, and I, you and I see eye to eye on so many things that I don't see most branding and strategists on a level that I don't see a lot of branding strategists think. Hmm. So I think that's part of it. But even when I think about your brand and what I think of it, I don't necessarily know. And actually, tell me what this is. I don't necessarily know that that's what your external brand should be, (laughs) even if it's positive and what I think of you. I don't know that it would work as the front page of your well, let me hear it. I'm, I'm now you've got me. Really <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, like sum it up. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, you're super heady and academic. That's right. obvious. Right. That part. <laughs> That's yeah. part of it, and thorough and strategic, and a little verbose, and yeah. <laughs> but so so unwavering in what do you how you believe right that things need to occur in order to get the results. And that is, to me, that's the most important. I mean, that's why that's your brand in my head, because that's the most important piece to me, because I, I'll send any, I mean, I don't send people to you because I don't want to waste your time. But when I do send them actually to you, it's like, because I know James is just yeah. going to talk to them for a few minutes and be like, no, sorry, that's not what I do. <laughs> you, you know, you're one of the few people, even though I preach this to everybody, you're one of the few people who I know you're, you're just like me, you're running the opposite way, unless they're a perfect fit. Yeah. And those are the people that I can send anyone to because I'm not worried about them. So like I said, you wouldn't sell based on right. that, but it is an affect and it is a, a, a way of 
talking and speaking, it's actually something that I'm also probably picking up on and or glomming onto because it's a big part of my brand. And mm-hmm. I put a lot of that out there. You know, at this point, people call me, they're like, I'm hoping you'll let me hire you. <laughs> nice. Inside, I'm like chuckling. But that's because I put on this really aggressive front, like, I'm not going to work with you <laughs> unless, you know, X, Y, and Z. So no, I think of good. you like that, but well, you don't I, really I think say you, that. Your description is actually fascinating because w- what you just said is kind of the reflection of our core values. You said I was sort of cerebral. Our first core value is learning, that we are constantly learning. One of the, when I walk into a room where there's a lot of high powered people, one of the things that I say is, I have no professional qualifications to stand in front of you today, other than my professional failures. And the fact that I have spent 23 years failing my way to learning enough to be useful to you today is really all that I have. And so that process, because every project, every endeavor is both a success and a failure. And if we don't acknowledge the failure part, the learning is very minimal. You have to acknowledge the failure and you have to look at that failure and take what is to be learned from it because that's where improvement occurs. So that element of learning or that aspect of learning is is at the heart of what we do. And it's interesting that you, you kind of reflected that back. The second part where you went next, is rigor. That's our second core value. Mm. That, you know, everything is has to be both rigorous at the big picture and in the details. And the third part, which relates to where our conversation started, is actually a modification. I've reverted, I've converted the third value from honesty to empathy. And, you know, honesty is nice, but it only takes you so far. Empathy is kind of forever. It's something that we're constantly and always going to need to work on. And it has the capacity to continually make us better, better at understanding ourselves and our clients and, you know, better at learning how we need to be in order to be most useful because empathy is a very proactive, you know, value. It's not about sort of looking at the person's situation and, and feeling bad about it, but rather sort of seeing it as they see it. And that is your key to being, to figuring out what the leverage point is where you can do the most good. So, so yeah, thank you. That was nice to hear those things. And, and of course that's, you know, we don't walk in saying, you know, we're all about learning rigor and empathy, but if that's felt on the outside, then we're doing it right. Well, it's felt by me from you and it's not surprising that that would those would be the core values of your agency. I mean, that makes yeah. sense. We are our business, which is kind of where I came to that even to begin with was the idea of our businesses. Even when you have this team, mm-hmm. it really does rest at, at its core on who you are and what your vision is and what you want to do, which it is for me, too, which is why I'm evolving, because even though I tell people to focus and that has gotten me really far focusing it was easier it was easier yeah. but it and and it got me to a place where i could then expand you yeah. know i think there is a natural ebb and flow a contraction and expansion i i think of branding tell me if this resonates with you i think of branding as kind of like an hourglass hmm. like you have to go in really really yeah. specific but then you are actually able to expand again because Cautiously. through 
Caution. Right. Well, I've, I've probably gone off the deep end. With, with thoughtfulness. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when, when you are very specific in whatever it is that you're doing, developing expertise is an expansive process. And yes. people think that focus will be limiting. And I try to tell them, no, it's actually there is endless opportunity to expand in focus because then you go deeper, right? An inch wide and a mile deep, like going the mile deep is not boring. But that said, as I've gone the mile deep, I found all this cool stuff. <laughs> like, right. Well, I want to do all of these things also because they're so, and, and not just because I find them interesting, but because they're critical. The more I learn about all of these things, I have to bring these tools in. I mean, that's why I'm, I've really become a business coach that talks a lot about money and mindset because they're just there and they need to be spoken about. And actually, you also do that. You have your entry point of, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think of you as branding and marketing strategy and then you do execution. Yeah. Yeah. But but behind that, you do all kinds of things, including culture, Mm -hmm. which... Yes. is not true for everybody because for us, you need to that's the yeah. internal application of the brand right so a mm-hmm. lot of it, and it's 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 more difficult in many respects than the external and less fun for a branding organization that's really focused on the visual brand you know if you're if if, if you're focused on that you want to get that done and hand it over to them and then say okay well you guys deal with the let let hr handle the internal you know, implementation. But I, I would argue that if you can't do the internal implementation, then the external stuff is really meaningless. So, you know, you have to have not only a differentiated market position, but the operational practices that support it. And that in combination is strategy. And neither one without the other is truly a, a strategy. Mm. How, do, how do you, your clients, you have large clients. I mean, all of your clients are Fourteen thousand people. Like, what's the? Well, they're not all that client? size, but yeah, that. No. The, but what? They range from yeah. about. Well, we we've we've we help on occasion. We've helped some pretty small businesses, like you know, five ten people. But I think the the sweet spot is about one hundred to to say two thousand employees. I think the fourteen thousand is is on the kind of stretching it end of things, just because you have so many business units and incredible sort of internal complexity, the number of personalities, you know, so we're dealing with the, the CEO, the CFO, the the VP of marketing, the VP of HR, uh, you know, and, and, <laughs> for me, and, and, and we've literally run sort of the alignment workshops with 200 director level and above employees of that organization, because it was physically impossible for us to go below that into the rank and file. So we're essentially training the trainers on this for them to implement that. And that, you know, that's a whole other sort of scale of process. And if, if we had too many of those, it would just suck up all of our resources, which gets to how you build a team and, right. and, and all of that. Well, do you know, have you seen, I don't know, I don't know where this article is, but I wrote an article. I don't know if I actually mentioned you by name, but I the the gist of the article was the time my friend told me how you can get a five hundred thousand dollar client and actually lose two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I I used it as an it was it really stuck in my head because when you told me that story, I then try to translate that to mostly individual business service business owners, you know, solopreneurs, yeah. and tell them it's the exact same 
It's the exact same thing for you. It's just that you're not seeing the money because you're not paying payroll yes. or for ads or whatever, the, all the expenses. You're just paying with your time. So if you're overworked, if you're working all the time, you're essentially getting paid $500,000 and spending $700,000 to yes. do the project. <laughs> to do the project. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the opportunity cost that a mis mis a mis a misfit client yes. has. And the consequences are even beyond that because you're also not going to deeply satisfy them. And if you do not deeply satisfy them, then you don't get any other benefits. The other <laughs> referral and sort of, you know, a positive kind of goodwill. About you, yeah. goodwill <laughs> all of that goes with the money that you've, mm -hmm. uh, money and time you've wasted. So yeah. It's a huge cost. It's much more dangerous at your right. level because it, the pendulum swings that much greater. How do you, you've, which failure, how did, yeah, <laughs> did you learn, learn from, like, how, how do you manage that now that, that we can? Well, the, to, to stay on the culture idea, there's also a cultural fit between service provider and client. And, you know, people reduce that to sort of personality. Do we like them or not? But it's actually more, it's deeper than that. What is their attitude toward change? How, how capable is your client of introspection? Mm. You know, how defensive are they or protective of information? How honest are they with in, in letting you as their, as the person who's, or their organization that's there to help them, you know, in on information that will help you do your job? So all of these things matter because part of the equation is how much impact you're going to have. You know, if you're doing the work and you're getting paid, fine. But if it doesn't mean anything, not fine. That's not fine. It's not, we, we only have so many heartbeats. We want them to be meaningful. And so, you know, what is that relationship like? And are they aligned with you in, in this sort of deeper level of, you know, what they seek to achieve in the world or how they treat you like we go in very strongly on the team dynamic like you we are not a vendor if you treat us like a vendor well there's lots of other vendors you can have go find a vendor we're going to be a team and that means that we're going to expose our failures and you're going to expose yours and we're not going to play a blame game we're going to try to be the best we possibly can be as a team recognizing the differences and the different aspects that everyone around this table is is bringing into this project and if, if they, you know, and sometimes that's scary, right? If they want the kind of control that says, no, I tell you, you do, then, you know, that's not going to work. And they're going to see that that's not going to work. And I've, you know, we've been excluded from opportunities as a result of that. And that's probably a good thing. Yeah. It'd be a huge waste of your time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, that is such a cerebral way to explain a, a very similar process that I think I have inherently in the brand we put forth and then the kind of I'm talking very short conversation I have with somebody. And if the question, if the answers don't line up to my questions and it, I don't I couldn't tell you what those answers are. I can just tell. Yeah, I can just tell. Are you a great client or not? You know, are you coming to me with the right needs, understanding when I ask you what's wrong? If mm -hmm. you, you know, do you understand that there's something wrong or yeah. just looking to tell me what to do? I'm curious because it's something that I 
learned naturally over time by doing it and failing and having lots of clients that didn't work out and you start, you you know, you just adjust, you adjust and you learn. But because I am a small micro business and it's really just me talking to that owner, it can be informal Mm -hmm. in that way. You have a total, how do you do, do you have a formal process? Is it a combination of formal and informal? It's no, it's probably, it's a pretty close analog to what you just described. Instead of you're having that conversation. I mean, yes, we have those conversations, but then we're also, you know, we have interviews and formal presentations. And in those presentations, we don't, we, we're, we're really not trying to please them. We're trying to clarify what this is going to be like. And if, 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 if they're not ready for that internally, then we'll be, we'll be eliminated. And that's what, that's the way it should be. And if they are, if they are ready, then we will distinguish ourselves from the competition because they're being much more obsequious. Is this during a pitch? Like a pitch presentation. Yeah, live. Like pitch presentation. Yeah, but yeah. Right, right. What do you guys do in your world? You so we get, yeah, so we're in the pitch because, yeah, you've yeah. formally right. done the RFP. You've, you've kind of made it through the... Oh, gotcha. Pitch. After the RFP, there's a pitch, a yes. live pitch. Yes, yes. Okay. Pretty much always there's... There's a, it's a, they call it an interview or, or a pitch or whatever. And at right. that moment, we're there either physically or virtually. Guns blazing. <laughs> right. Am I, are you scared yet? You know, and, right. Are we, you know, and your and, version of that. Sorry, uh, that would be my that. version. <laughs> um, and, and we've beat, you know, we've beaten the likes of Landor and IDEO in those pitches when the match was right, when the fit Great. was right lose it when it's not and you you didn't lose it i mean i literally don't see that as losing it that's right you've you've helped them to the right decision yeah i i I think with this process i I tell people i have a hundred percent close rate and i'm i'm right that's right i'm really for the right client yeah if you didn't pick me (laughs) then it wasn't a fit i mean i don't know and i genuinely feel that way you have to genuinely feel that way until you genuinely feel that way it sounds like a sales yeah because you know, then you're faking it, thing. right you're trying to fake right something. trying to be something that you're not or pretend to be something that you're not and you and you can feel it when you're doing that and yeah. you'll feel it after you've got that business because it's gonna hurt <laughs> it's gonna hurt <laughs> <laughs> so do you find that that misfit is the reason that you would l- lose money on a on a client it, uh, it's really the that, miss that's yeah. a big yeah yeah I mean, there's also a right. It's 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 a misfit, but it's also a, the a, a misunderstanding of your own capabilities, right? Mm, we which all, also just comes from failure and experience. Yeah, we want to yeah. believe that we're great at all kinds of stuff that we're really mm-hmm. not great at, mm-hmm. and the proof of that is the results, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to look back and say, okay, when we took project of this type, what happened? Were the mm-hmm. results phenomenal? Did we really have the impact we wanted? And did they love us? at the end, you know, from having done that, that tells you, yeah, you're good at that. And then over here, you know, did we, it could be that you made, made money, but it was just excruciating and, and everybody's, you know, mad at the end. And, you know, that's, you know, we don't want to live like that kind of a life, I don't think. So that proof, the proof is in, is in the result and the feeling. So it's the saw, it's the tangible and the intangible together, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, did we have the impact that we set out to have on the organization and how did it feel as we were doing it? And, 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 you know, when we're looking back, would we do it again? Not for the money, but 
but would we do it again because we were going to exhaust that portion of our life doing that? Is that okay? Right. Right. And especially you, James, like you, to have a team and to do these large projects, you have to like these clients because oh, you don't multi-year projects yeah yeah i mean multi-years with the client <laughs> yeah you better enjoy yourself and but not just that i i think about anybody who's got a team under them i even think about this for myself it's like you you i've kind of joked about this with you at, at points like you could be this solo consultant living the high life doing working a lot less in many respects. That's true. That's true. Right? That's not why you do it, yeah. right? So you have to like the clients or else it's a lot of work. You have to like the work, you have to like your team, you yeah. you know, it's that that intersection of your passion, your true natural ability and your and your usefulness. It's like Are you are you training anyone in your company to be you? To be the person at the whiteboard? Yes. At, at, at some level, everyone. At another level, there are particular, there's a particular sort of set of sort of natural abilities that is important for the yeah. work. Especially the, you know, being a trusted advisor to powerful people in large organizations. You know, you have to have a certain ability to, to kind of pivot on the dime and do the right thing in the moment when it's needed. So there's mm -hmm. a kind of improvisational intelligence that is not everybody's gift. Oh, uh, sure. I'm sure a, a set of a set of skills, including a lot of emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. too, I would imagine, because right. get kind of heated. Well, so, so there's all the, the, the stuff you need to know, right? There's, yeah. a, there's that. And then there's the and then there's the like I said, there's this uh, kind of on the spot, you know, what is needed that the intuition to sort of push the right way to get over that thing to the place where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. Reading the dynamics of a complex room, you know, those, those abilities, I don't know where they come from or how you get them, but it, it could be a lifetime of, of failure. working at it and try, <laughs> well, failure and then working on it. Yes. Plenty of people fail and don't learn anything. <laughs> from it. What's the, and what's the difference? What's the difference between those two things? Failing and not learning and failing and learning. And growth. Right. And the focus of your attention after the fact. So if you fail and in, and kind of hide the failure, pretend that it didn't happen, recast it as a success, there's very little learning to be gleaned from that. Mm. So it's the acknowledgement, the self-acknowledgement of the failure that's the starting point for the learning. And, it, and the, the, you know, people talk about failure, but then they don't admit failure and, 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 and sort of really examine it. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I, took, I took this program where there was a goal-setting element to it. And a big part of it was talking about, you know, every week. Mm-hmm what you set out to do and then what you succeeded at and what you failed at. And it was very important that we called them failures and yes. it, it, everybody hated it. Yep. You know, I, I didn't have time, like fail at it. And the, <laughs> the purpose of it was to more and more adjust yourself to the idea that it's not bad that you failed. No. You 
just didn't do it. And that's okay. But this word in our society is so heavy and it's not okay to fail. But that's kind of where it all begins is just imagine being raised where that just doesn't have that same gravitas and it's not so scary. Well, it'll be a lot easier to say I failed at something. The, the, The two ends of the spectrum here are performance and learning. On one hand, performance encourages you to seem like you've achieved the objective, even if there was failing, failing and learning in the middle, but you essentially obscure the failings to focus on what you've achieved. Mm. Whereas learning really takes the time to examine the things that didn't work and understand why. Because of the nine types of failure that Amy Edmondson outlines, seven of them are praiseworthy. Seven of them should absolutely be encouraged. And it's, it's only kind of abject dereliction of duty, like way down at the, at the bottom end, that's really blameworthy. So most failures are really worthy of praise and celebration because of the learning that can be gleaned from them. That's just another way of giving the speech in my TEDx talk, James. Did you see my TED talk yet? I'll have to send it to you. Yes, absolutely. It's all about taking the leap and how that's the only way to build confidence, which is just another word for growth. Well, right. So there's there's the underlying this is confidence, but also trust, right? So if if you don't trust your leader or you don't trust your team, then the likelihood that you're going to be able to sort of openly talk about failure is very low. Right. And th- that that culture of sort of the foundation of trust to recognize that we're all human and we, we're all always at some level going to fail and and not to sort of, and to recognize that that's something that we can all use to learn. So if you if you see something where you could have done better and you don't talk about it, you're taking away the learning opportunity from everyone else on the team and you're hiding it and you're and, and you and you, and ultimately you take it away from yourself as well but to take it out and examine it publicly the team builds trust by the way uh, as long as it's not violated or used manipulatively and if somebody is going to do that then they shouldn't really be on the team they should be that's qual- that's qualification to be thrown off the team but that allows the whole team to learn from the experiences of, of any sub-team or any given individual. Mm-hmm. The essence of learning, right? So, that, so these things need to be spoken up about. Like, right. how could we have done that better? Where did we go wrong? Was this a systems problem? Was this too much complexity that we created, right? Was this unnecessarily complex? Did we misjudge the situation, you know, all of these things, or, or, or did we do this as a tactical experiment to see if, if this would work? Like, are we actually applying the scientific method toward continuous improvement, which is also necessitates failure, right? If you're, if you're going to innovate there's, and you don't fail, you're, you're not innovating, you're pretending. So this is part yeah. of the process. Of- yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you have like your morning failure meeting with your team? <laughs> you know, we don't, but we do have a postmortem after every engagement of consequence. And we have it with our clients and with our own, with ourselves. So that analysis, the setting aside the time for sort of postmortem analysis mm-hmm. allows you then to make adjustments so you can feed that back into the top of the system, you know, to take Drucker's 
sort of what, what are the five elements of a good plan? The first, of course, is abandonment, which connects to simplicity, right? What are you not going to do? So mm. the things that you choose to do, you can do well. So you take the analysis and apply it to the first element, abandonment, so that you can figure out what you're going to concentrate on in the next go round, and then innovation and risk-taking, that's three and four, and then finally analysis. So you've got to leave the time for all of those things, all of those steps. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of ad-libbing. And so that you can also take everything from that experience and apply it to the next go round. Absolutely. Which is the whole, the, the whole process of iteration to just continually try to the infinity, I think of it as just approaching. <laughs> and it's really, it's really yeah. hard. It's frustrating yeah. because you put so huh. much passion right. into the creation of that thing and it bombs because it's not good enough and it has all of these things wrong with it. And then you, you have to like pick up and go again and say, okay, now let's, what, what do we drop? What do we keep? And let's go again. So how is that manifesting in your business? Every project is very much consciously a an opportunity for that kind of learning that continuous okay. learning and we do take risks we are innovating even even the parts of the process that we know work really really well sometimes i frustrate my team because of that because i'm constantly trying new things even though they know that that's what what are you that that yeah. that's works so well like what are you doing right. not messing with it <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's this great story from the Toyota way where the sort of Chrysler executives come in and they look at this solution that the, the people on the front line at Toyota had come up with in order to, to assemble like four different cars on the same line. And they're looking at all the intricate details of like how they optimize the system. And they said, oh, that's fantastic. And then they, they take it back and they implement it and it's like really successful. And then they come back two years later and it's all entirely different. And it's like, well, what happened? Like, that was the perfect system. Well, now we have five cars on the line. And that system has been totally replaced by this one, which is optimized to this particular situation. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like blew their minds that they, that they would scrap this thing that was just so far better than what they, that what they right. had. But that is the process of continuous improvement. It is not something that stops. It cannot be let stop. Right. Yeah, it's, it's taken me almost 10 years to accept that this is not going to stop <laughs> until you die right i'm not going to get there <laughs> well rather you can get there but then you would stop growing and that would and that's i mean why, that would probably die that's that why, well, yeah that's why 88% yeah. of all businesses that were on the top of the fortune 500 list no longer exist or have been right. bought or sold uh, sold to to nothing because they were great at what they did and mm-hmm. it was phenomenal Mm-hmm. And anyone who looked at it would say it was phenomenal and it was profitable and it was everything you could imagine, but it was stagnant. It was stuck. Mm-hmm. And the world is never stuck. The world is always in motion. Are you the one who likes to use um the Parmenides Kodak? Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well what's someone someone told me that someone used Kodak. I thought yeah. it was you. Uh, I mean, the, you know, what is the business of, of Kodak? And if they had been in capturing memories. Or something to that photos, yes. then they would have been Instagram. Yeah, they could have become. They could have been Instagram. Yeah. There's right. a lot of steps between those two points and a lot of s- continual self-examination and creative destruction, right? The abandonment that 
that Drucker describes, like that would have to be repeated over and over again in order to get from one place to another. You love Peter Drucker. I can't, I can't. <laughs> He's too dry for me. What, what does he say about abandonment? Oh, he says, like I, I was just describing, that was that, that model of what's the first element of a good plan. Mm-mm. That's from Peter Drucker. Abandonment. That, that you have to decide what you're going to give up. Even because, if it's really working. Yes. It, yeah. And, and, you know, this is the, this is always the struggle because time and complex, time accrues complexity. It's, it's like the barnacles on a ship like that. Yes. They, they, you know, every system you build, it just gets more and more complicated. You, 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 you fix the problem that occurred one time last year, and that adds another <laughs> subroutine to the, to the effort. And, and that those things need to be constantly evaluated and removed when, when no longer necessary, which is the, the moral of that, the story of the, the line on, on the toy, at the Toyota plant, where mm-hmm. all of these intricate systems that they'd spent so much energy building and perfecting went away when conditions changed. They didn't keep them beyond their utility. When their utility was expired, they expired. But that's not how things naturally occur. Like that's mm-hmm. an unnatural process. So naturally, all of these things just stick with you. They stay and they, they get carried along. They get dragged like a big sack of you know old tin cans that have, have outlived their utility, but we preserve because that's how we do it. A very tangible example that I'm sure everyone can relate to is all of our SaaS products. <laughs> Yes, all 17 of them. Yeah, we like, why am I paying (laughs) $7.99 a month for this one and $150 for this one? What do these do again? I forget. Because sometimes you picked it up. Yes. yes, What's truly essential? Yeah. So you've got to constantly revisit and just realize there's never the reason there's never going to be the silver bullet, the thing that fixes it is because you will always be evolving. And even for me, what I am usually helping people do is move to this, a certain state that a service business can be in where it is operating in harmony because their numbers are, make sense because their prices make sense. Their, their brand has enough equity and reputation that they can charge enough Mm -hmm. and they can make enough working this much and have that life. And yet, as soon as that happens, anybody that's the baseline. Yeah. That's the, that, that creates the next opportunity. Mm -hmm. Well, now I have time and money and I've never met anyone who just says, so I'm just going to go twiddle my thumbs and lay on a beach. I've never, you know, because entrepreneurs aren't like that. Yeah. I know people who would do that, but they're not entrepreneurs. <laughs> so they would never get to that place. It's I can't be that explicit because before you've gotten there, that is the nirvana that right. you're headed towards. So that's it. You just can't wait to get to that place. Well, that's also human nature. You're you're actually, you know, that the the, the fact that we don't, we don't have a steady bar. The bar is always shifting, and we can adjust to the that new new the new normal is is achievable in all sort of the aspects of our of our life. And then, and then, what do we do? Do we come, become wasteful and obsessive, or do we continue to to genuinely improve? I mean, the the interesting thing about about lean and agile is the is the attention to wastefulness. I think, and that's why Drucker uses abandonment. That he uses the harshest word. It's the scariest word you can have 
for that thing <laughs> because it's that hard. And, and so, you know, you sort of have to face the music when it comes to, okay, what am I going to give up? And it's scary to let things go, which goes back to that point about small businesses with their different lines of business that, you know, they keep to protect themselves from all of these possibilities or because they, you know, once had a client that asked them to yeah. do that. Diversification <laughs> feels like insurance, but it's actually the opposite. When we when we experience something like COVID, you actually realize how spe specializing is what protects you, yeah. not yeah. diversification. And the reason is because, especially in a small business, and, and even... I mean, I consider yours a small business mm -hmm. and ours yeah, like a micro business. But when I think of whenever people say, oh, there's not enough clients, not enough econ the economy, not enough money, people aren't hiring. You know, there are how many billion, <laughs> seven, eight billion people. You're one person. Yes. You know, you need three clients. Yeah, there are three people in this world who are hiring. So that is excuses. <laughs> and and they're they're going to in a tough economy or in a in a tough situation they are going to hire the expert yes. they're they're going to look for the expert only the experts are going to rise to the top maybe you can diversify when there's everyone's getting hired and there's there's right. more demand than there is supply yeah uh, then you can sloppy yeah. expansion is just a, is just yeah. a, impossible and right. yeah so it's actually the i agree with you entirely some of our clients from a few years ago have rehired us to help them with this current situation and the the argument is yes we, well we have to even work harder now and and not be sloppy about how we're dedicating our limited resources mm -hmm. um, good times kind of accommodate sloppiness it it, it lets yes. it, it lets it happen and you you don't really feel it until good times end. And then that sloppiness begins to really sort of hurt you. Yes. Yes. So I want to, I want to change topics for a second because one of, one of, I mean, you're really just a good example of this. And <laughs> so I want to point it out. You are selling very high level strategy. I don't mm -hmm. know how, what else to, mm -hmm. how else to describe it very thoughtful. You do research-based strategy. Yep. You yep. do in-depth research. I mean, I really, besides the big guys, I, I really don't know any like smaller agencies that do that, that kind of level of work. But the reason that people know that you do that kind of work and that you have this higher level of intellect ab about this topic is because you have written more articles than I, and I've written a lot of articles. <laughs> you have written more articles online than I think anyone in the yeah, world. And, I should, and, I should, and there's, there's really so much more to write. I, I, I've been so busy recently, I've slowed down, but yeah, that content is useful to me. I mean, it, it, it's useful yeah. to have those thoughts kind of there for my resource use as well as having putting them out into the world. So it's not, it's, it's partially sure. selfish. <laughs> I mean, I, I do the same thing. It's helpful to have to articulate your ideas. Yes. It reinforces them and actually makes it easier to communicate about them yep. when speaking, yep. I find. And then I send people articles as answers to questions all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I read this here. I wrote this for you. In fact, if people ask questions and I don't have an article, I usually write an article about it. There you it go. That's right. That's great. the prompt to yeah, fix that. So you've prompt. got the answer. Yes. But I think you're just a really good example of, of how 
that is a big part of your brand, as we yes. discussed before. And you could not, nobody would know that <laughs> if you didn't write these articles. Right. So to the people who think that blogging is dead, <laughs> I just wanted to use you as an example. So that means that people that come to us after having read 10 articles are very well qualified. Right. right? Uh, right. So we don't get sort of sloppy inquiries. Right. Which saves you a lot of time. Saves a lot of time. Yeah. So I w would you say everybody reads? Before they, yeah, for the most part they do. Right. Like the, the, I had a, a recent experience where a board member of an organization who didn't read said she'd watched this video that we did on what is a brand seven times prior to our engagement. So, so that would be another way. Like you could, you're doing this podcast, for example, right? Gives kind of richness and character and personality and right. depth to, to knowing you and your brand. And that makes the person that's going to be drawn in by that uh, a fit. Absolutely. Right. So it's a screening mechanism in a sense. Absolutely. Well, and I forgot how well screened people were yeah. until I randomly got introduced to somebody and ended up on the phone with somebody who was like trying to get me to pitch them. And right. I was so confused. <laughs> I was like, what are you, at? did you not go to my website? She was like, oh, I haven't seen it yet. I was like, yeah. Yeah. you know what? You need to go do something spend some time there. And then if you still want to talk to me, call me back because I, I really, I just, I don't even know how to pitch. Right. Somebody yeah. who doesn't know. She was so good. She was like, but one to three days, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, Jesus. I was like, I don't have time for this. And I haven't been in that position in a very long time. That, yeah. So really putting it out there. Yeah. That's a, that's a tremendous benefit that people don't yeah. necessarily realize. It's, it's not it's not marketing as much as it's screening yes. of the prospect so that you're not wasting time with a bunch of superfluous inquiries. Yes. But you get, I mean, tons of traffic to your site. I know that you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, is it through the articles? Pretty much. And, and it was also very true when I was, I was writing more. There's a cl close correlation, unfortunately, between volume and traffic, volume of content and traffic. Yeah. And I am, I don't, you know, I don't like volume as much as I like depth and quality. And it takes time to create depth and quality. I know. So. I know. And I've tried both. Mm. And? Yeah. and quantity without quality, you have to have so much more of it. Yeah. So much more. I mean, the the ratio of of traffic that it brings and qualified traffic it, or, is so different, not ratio, uh, but you know what I'm saying, right? You 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 you've got to up the quantity so far that it's almost yes, impossible. Yes, exactly. You have to have like a team of writers almost. Exactly. To, to, well, to... that is how I did it <laughs> because I can't. I'm not gonna. And actually, I a lot of that stuff I don't even necessarily read because I can't. Because when I start reading it, then I'm like, oh no, oh, we no. can't. Say that. And then I and then Steve's like, you can't spend hours, you know. Right. So just well, forget right. it. But it serves a different purpose, you know. I, and I've had to let go of that. <laughs> it's hard because you're you're kind of like, for me, particularly during the time when I was writing a a lot more than I am now, you know, I was like one third publisher. And, and that's actually in my Next. background. You know, I had I have magazine background. And oh. so, so I, you know, that, that was, 
enjoyable in, in a sense, but that's a huge ask. Like, are you asking sort of the average business person to sort of t- to take that on? It's that's not really fair. So it, it's a certain right. personality that. That's right. Roots. Well, and but well, I agree that it's not fair, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is. It is a thing. It, you know, it's easy to say that coming from you and me who already have a huge stable of yeah. content yeah. that we did write yeah. that is the foundation for all of this. So mm-hmm. again, there are phases and I do think And I stand by this. I do think that all business owners who are selling any sort of strategy and want to be a thought leader, that's why we hire a thought leader to do strategy because of their thoughts needs to share their thoughts. Right. And you so have to be able to that, they shouldn't really try exactly. that. That shouldn't be exactly. their goal. Yeah. And anybody who's a strategic thinker, you know, you don't have to be a, a professional writer, but you should be able to articulate your ideas. And if you can't articulate them, then writing them is the way to learn how to articulate <laughs> them. You don't have to be the editor. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be the person that takes it to the finish line, but you have to be the person who puts the ideas down. In because the you have place. to think those thoughts. You have to think those thoughts. <laughs> exactly. If you don't think them and you can't communicate them, then yeah. you have no business charging very high prices for your strategic yeah. thoughts and okay. ideas. Yeah, I agree. So, but that does not mean that you have to write like that forever <laughs> because it is a very big it time big suck. Ask. It's yeah. a huge, it's a huge undertaking. And, you know, to, to write a really thoughtful article, I, I could spend all day on it, especially because oh, yeah. I'm not just teaching. If you, it's a, a really good article, is also going to give examples and, and bring it to life. And all of that is just, it's very No, it's hard a lot work. of work. I mean, it's rewarding in its own way, but it is a great deal of, of, of work. And, but it, it has cumulative benefits. So once it you've does. written 200 articles, you have that resource and it's yours and you... You get clients from them forever. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yes. Well, so how do your clients come to you? These days, the most interesting clients actually come from other businesses that understand who we are and what we do and find a situation that demands it. So someone comes to them and they're not ready. And they, they need this sort of strategic triage. So Mm. they say, wait, we'd love to do that. But they know in their heart of hearts that it was it's going to be a nightmare because they haven't even figured out who they are as a brand, as an organization. And that work needs to be done before we can do the visual brand or before, you know, we can execute a, a really effective marketing plan. So, so those clients are excellent. They are brought to us kind of by a someone in a parallel business, you know, by a PR firm or a brand mm-hmm. design firm. And, and it's like uh, a sort of very warm introduction where we go and do our work and then hand it back, hand the, the client back to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, so people that come in through our blog are also very good. They tend to be seekers. They tend to be people who have just come into a responsibility, like they're the VP of marketing, but they were not a marketer prior to that. And they've, and they, that we used to get particularly <laughs> How did that happen? That happens. A lot of, for example, in one of our sort of work categories is asset management firms. Asset management firms are not marketing organizations. They're sales organizations. And so when they decide at some point in their life that they need to get serious about marketing, they 
they put an asset manager in that, in that job, right? They don't hire mm. an outside professional marketer. They hire someone from the inside who's got an interest. And they're very smart people who yeah. can learn. And so what, what happened was they would be trying to figure this out and then they'd find our content and it would be very helpful in their figuring it out. And then they're, so they're, then they come to us and start asking questions directly. We've gotten a couple huge projects that way. So those were, you know, really cold leads off the website. And other instances, maybe a board member who participates in something, you know, is asked like for asked to give a referral, and we've been given as a as a referral. So it's a mix. It's a mixture. Mm-hmm. We also get museum projects, for example, because they Google like museum marketing, and there we are. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I associate you with. Museums, first yeah. and foremost. Yeah, I mean that's the fun stuff. We do a lot of that, yeah. and it's uh, it's the cultural work that we do. The other two categories where we have strength are nonprofit healthcare and and financial services, and not the whole of financial services, but really mm-hmm. asset management, insurance, and and like you know probably at, at some SAAS. Uh-huh. sort of finance stuff, because those are places where we've had work, we have case studies, we know we can make a difference. The people, you know, if there's a cultural fit, we have a, enough expertise to be really valuable. I mean, that's the thing about expertise, right? If you, have, if, you, if you have one client in a category and then another client approaches you, that's competitive, right? And mm-hmm. they don't want but if you have f- four clients in the same category, then all of a sudden you're an expert and it doesn't matter anymore that, the, that, that they're competitive. Oh, okay. So that's, another, never... that's another advantage of true expertise, right? Sure. Once you're deep enough and have enough work in the same category, then all of a sudden it doesn't matter that you have a competitive client. Sure. We had both zoos in Chicago at one point at the same time, and we learned in the middle we told both parties about what was going on and it turns out that the uh, customer was a very different customer and the focus uh-huh. of the brands were very different and actually having both at the same time was beneficial to both i wouldn't think zoos would be competitive with each other i would think they would all <laughs> just, just be, be want happy, people to yeah like <laughs> well i mean everything is competitive because you're you know you're competing for for donations or sure, attendance sure. <laughs> or you know attention, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, it's sure. it's not necessarily just a market share question. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Wow. Well, I'm excited for where your business is headed. How how are you gonna? I guess it's you got to double the sales to double the team. It, it's a uh, right chicken and the egg, of course. The I mean, you could have as many clients as you want. Is how I see it. <laughs> so, it's so, easier. So that's, easy for me to say, okay. but so so right. So then here, so that now you're getting back to the beginning of the conversation about the diversity question, mm-hmm. right? So if we take on too many clients that demand the deep strategic work that we do, yeah. that is dependent on my time and attention, then there's a very finite resource there, right? In terms of my time and attention, so either we need to bring in more people like me, essentially more consultants. We have to expand the consultancy capacity of mm-hmm. of the organization. Or we have to extend another aspect of our business that is less reliant on my direct input, which is, in fact, the 
uh, advertising work that we do for some of our clients. So I'm which you know, is longer term. That's which is also longer term, which right. structurally supports the W two employees that I have. Right. So project based sure. work is not suited structurally to no. you know full time W two employees. No. I far prefer full time W two employees. So that's all I have. But I need the kinds of contracts that actually match that. And the consulting work, although it is repeat work, but it's a repeat work on a multi year cycle. So you have Mm-hmm. project and then you'll have another project four years later when they're does it turn into the marketing work sometimes always sometimes. never but in okay. fact the the initial the, the initial intent is determinative more than i would like oh okay right so if you are hired to be the brand strategy expert mm-hmm. and the likelihood that at the end of that brand strategy project they're going to go back and hire an agency to execute is actually very high especially in commercial work. And it's true because they understand that as an agency, there are a thousand other agencies that are as good as we are. But as a brand strategy firm, there are not. And, and so it's really an emotional continuity and, that, and, and not much more. Because it, so if, and so what happens in nonprofit engagements where they deeply trust us, then we move on to the agency work and they may know that there's a possibility that there could be a better agency out there, mm-hmm. but they don't have the established trust and the sort of implicit understanding that we're going to always operate in their best interest. So, so that's what holds it right. t- together. And it, and it works out to the benefit of everyone. But I think, yeah. But you're, But you've got the marketing aspect that creates the stability and... We have inquiries, right? We have like 10, 15 but things that we're currently working on right now. Yeah. So yeah, so that there's there's a right there's there's stuff in the funnel. Right. No, but no, but I'm I'm thinking of the structure of your business, like the the brand strategy and the deep yes. research and and the untangling, because that is also what I think of, like clusterfuck, yep. large yep. company organization clusterfuck, just called James. <laughs> I don't know. You got bigger problems than I can help you with. Right. I think of you for that's, <laughs> that's, that's your the, that's the, that's special. The, yes. Yes. That's Absolutely. your special thing, but you can't have an agency based on just that. It's hard. It would be hard. Because you, would, you also want multi-year like contracts that have, you know, a flow through that's consistent and reliable to make sure that you've got everybody's payroll covered at the end of every Right. Unless week. you just charge five times as much for these projects. Which and... we don't. I mean, maybe we right. should, but we don't. You know, we're, we're not. Uh, we, we, the process is actually remarkably efficient for our, for our clients, considering what they pay for it. I mean, it's, you know, McKinsey's minimum engagement is $2 million dollars we can accomplish similar things in our area of expertise, which is just a subcategory of what they do, but the brand strategy piece, which they also do, you know, along with a bunch of other things, but we can accomplish that for, you know, relatively modest sum by comparison. Give us a range. The range, the range depends on the risk. Okay. Right. So, so that, that, that's the core question. Like what does a brand strategy cost? Well, if what you're risking is the equivalent of, $50,000, $50,000, right? If the, if the whole thing fails and the, the risk that is there is $50,000 because you're a three-person startup, then that's what it should cost. It shouldn't cost what it would cost a 
a multi-billion dollar organization that is engaged in a rebrand. If they pay $50,000, that's stupid because their mitigation of risk that $50,000 will buy you is not enough to Uh cover the many millions that it's going to cost you to execute that. Right. So you actually base it on... Well, it it works out that way. Yes. Interesting. Right. So we asked that we we actually asked that question. What is what are you putting at risk here? You are going you're going to set the price for this and then we're going to set the services based on that number. Oh wow. Because that's the degree of risk mitigation that that will get that that will buy you. So the, it's like the, life insurance. <laughs> yes, kind of. <laughs> it is. It's insurance. It's risk it's risk mitigation of the rebrand. So you, you are hiring expertise in risk mitigation and the degree of certainty is augmented by expenditure of money on qualitative and quantitative rounds of research, for example. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Those each round costs, you know, for a good qualitative, a qu- good quantitative study around a complicated set of questions, it's going to set you back $90,000. Well, that's $90,000 of risk mitigation that you're buying. But if your whole project budget is $50,000, you just, you're going to have to live with that. And oh, by the way, it's not worth it to spend $90,000 of risk mitigation because you're not really risking that much. Uh-huh. So Northwell Health spent $28 million on their rebrand because there was significant, substantial, long-term risk involved. And that was the right expenditure for them. Oh, wow. So you're telling me that you can't charge these people the prices that they would need to charge where you wouldn't, where you could have that kind of reliability on an annual basis to support your team? So, right. A project, projects range from full project of sort of, like I, like I mentioned, sort of 50 to $80,000 up yeah. to, you know, half a million to a million dollars over the course of years. Right. And it's all about how much, it's not like we're charging more to do different amounts of work. The, the, the work actually kind of correlates. Sure. Right. Because all of the work that goes into the mitigation of risk is, is real work. Right. You know, the fact that we're doing these values orientations for 200 people is different from running values workshops for 50 people. And not only that, but we also have to institutionalize the system for them to sort of bring that into being and do all the planning so that they can execute that well and it will be a success. There's a whole ton of extra work involved in that scale of engagement from, you know, the 50-person the, the organization. So it is exponential, the amount of work as it goes, as the uh, organizations get bigger and the risk gets bigger. And the risk gets bigger. But you can overpay for... So, you know, we, when we beat Landor, it wasn't, it, we, we also beat them on price because they were overcharging for prestige. Is that and, overcharging? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I hang my hat on that. So, in the client's, in the client's mind, uh-huh. they had been convinced because it was a very compelling argument. And yeah. the person who brought us in said, wait, just wait, just wait for the last presentation. Just wait for these guys. And so they had, they had won the sort of, a very, they had made a very compelling and convincing argument and they were ready to sign on the dotted line for millions. And then we came in and told an entirely different story about how difficult this was going to be. And it wasn't unicorns and rainbows. It wasn't this promise that had been made by the previous presenters. And it, it really, 
would have was going to require a sort of deep commitment and and deep engagement on their part in order to make this actually work and that was convincing to them mm-hmm. and so i think they I, I think that that ultimately cost them probably after a year it was a year and a half and about five hundred thousand dollars as opposed to probably six months and a million mm. And we succeeded where the others may or may not have, right? So they mm-hmm. would have bought they would have bought experience and prestige and and experience, frankly, greater experience than we'd had with that particular type of client. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would have done it without nearly the intensive involvement that we had from everyone in that organization, mm. which they also paid for. Which they also right? yes. Which they also paid for. So they paid their people to be part of that, right? Right. They paid for their people to engage. But that changed the intensity and the depth of the work. Right. Because we were were equally concerned about the inside and not just the outside. Right. So the CEO in that instance recognized the depth of the issue Mm. and saw that the external solution was not a complete solution. And we were pitching an entirely different story. And, you know, we were well paid for that work, but it was really hard. Yeah. Well, they didn't just recognize it. They had to already be the kind of people who are ready to take on and do the harder work. I mean, some people, myself included, kind of naturally think you're going to get the better result when you do the harder work. <laughs> when you take the hard road, there that's is. When you get the real results. And some people don't want to hear that, right? No, they, some people not. don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. And those are the people who call you back a year later and go, okay, now we're ready to hire you. <laughs> or we spent all our budget, wish we had hired you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's very, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not... If I was just a focus on sales, it would probably serve us better to to exaggerate the inspirational aspects of it, which are certainly there, right? No, no, I I, I don't think so. I think that's your brand. That's one of the core things that I said about you is that you are unwavering in your need to do it the right way. And if you need me to do unicorns and rainbows, you're not a fit for me, which I of other places will offer you appreciate and respect. I still think you could charge those people more. I always say that to you. That's true. That's true. Well, that's, that's why you need outside advisors, right? Yes. Um, And that's why I have relinquished responsibility for setting budgets. Oh, really? (laughs) You took it away from me. (laughs) I took it away from myself. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) I don't do estimates. I look at them and say, wow. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> really? Okay. Really? Okay. Okay. No, no, it's not. I mean, I, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I have a, I have a number. I know when I talk to the person, yeah, sure. I know what they, you know, I know what that number they're is. They're expecting. Yeah. And that's not how the people that are actually setting the budgets is because they know how much work we're going to do. Sure. And those are different vantage points. Yes. Right? So my vantage point is totally on the client side. I'm like looking at what does the client think here yes. and what, how do I match that? And they're saying, well, what are we going to have to do in order to make this a success? And mm. what does that number need to be? And then we have to convince, we have to sort of do that adjudication. So I, I have taken myself out of the number setting game. Now, I'm asking you all of these questions because the the philosophy on pricing that I apply Again, it's a different kind of business and I and I do I can see that it would be different for a huge organization that has budgets, annual budgets and yeah. they have certain amounts of money that is put aside for this and you know, it's different than when you're talking to one person who 
it doesn't have a budget. You ask an individual what their budget is. That's a stupid question because (laughs) it's whatever it costs. That's, you know, to get the problem um, solved. But I do think your company and you guys have a unique selling point that anybody sitting there being pitched would say, well, we're not going to get that with any other company. And for that, you know, we're not Maybe the lowest bidder. We're rarely no, the lowest bidder. I'm yeah. sure you're not. I'm just, I'm wondering if, why you're not always the highest bidder. That's all I'm saying, James. I think you're the high. <laughs> I think you're worth the highest bid, James. I'm just saying. Well, you know, you, you're, you, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, there's, there's you, you know, on multiple occasions, especially when I was in charge of that, we would underbid our work. And then I would have to go back in year two and say, we can't do this again. We're going to have to double our rates or we can't proceed with the project. And in every instance, they allowed us to double our rates. Of course. Because we've, we'd proven the value at that point. So you think that. Well, but, but so, right. So it's, it's me (laughs) and my imposter syndrome basically at play undervaluing what we do because I'm seeing, I'm not, I'm not looking. You know how to do it. Yeah. Yes. I know how to do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard when you know the secret sauce and you know all the ingredients, it's magic to them. That's been described that way occasionally. Yes, yeah. I know it has. And I know that you can mesmerize people with all your magic tricks. <laughs> right, which, so. which is just a product of, of having done this now, you know, a hundred times with different organizations, right? That's, that's yeah, that's experience and, and ultimately expertise. And that's the kind of thing that always comes back to. And this is where, you know, even when you have an agency, I I think about consultants and, and anyone who is selling consultancy, which is what you are, even yeah. if you have an agency, yeah. it really does come down to the that person and their brain and what they're able to do and, and what they're able to see and what kind of expertise and, and greater landscape they're able to put all of these pieces into. And it's not something that you can teach as you are learning, you're teaching people and you're teaching them over many years, but it's hard to put a price on that. So I can see how you would say, if you're mitigating $50,000 worth of risk, you're not going to pay 90000 That doesn't make sense. Yeah. But but these people are are mitigating huge, much more than $50,000 worth of risk. And so, you know, you could probably go up to whatever that number is. <laughs> that would be the... Well, right. So that negotiation actually occurs, right? Yeah. So the fees that we end up getting out of a project, in effect, grow over time. That rarely is it budgeted... Mm-hmm properly because often the organization doesn't fully understand sure. what they're getting into. Uh, I'll tell you a, a very quick story about a recent uh, situation where it wasn't until the call that they understood what they were getting into. And as a result, they fired their director of marketing. <laughs> so it, it's kind of a, a, a bizarre example, but you know this, this whole RFP had gone out nationally and you know we were we responded because it was a perfect fit. We were one of the three finalists and it was, and we were the last call. And it was on that call that the CEO of the organization actually understood the project and killed it, firing the director of marketing and of course, eliminating the project from their future out of fear. Uh But it was a kind of epiphany where he just realized what he was what his director of marketing was asking him to step into and he was fully and wholly on a personal and professional level unprepared 
Wow. But it's a, t- but I think that's, they should we have made, paid you for that. <laughs> we, we made the right pitch, right? Because yeah, imagine right. what would have happened had oh they my God. engaged us, not knowing what unraveled. was actually going on. Yeah, yeah. it unraveled. Not to mention that guy probably would have had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so in, a, in effect, that organization will not be ready for this work until he's gone. Wow. But then they'll call you. Then if, if yeah, anyone there remembers, if anyone remembers, <laughs> if anyone there was around, <laughs> that's the other side we were talking about, like your ability to be useful organizations that do have serious issues and are at the point where they're beginning to recognize them. That's really rewarding work, mm. right? If they're entirely in denial, they're not going to hire us because it just doesn't make any sense. But once they're sort of like recognizing that that work needs to be done and they're ready to open up about it, I mean, that's the moment. Wouldn't you say any large organization that hasn't done this work in a very long time is in that position? It's just a matter of when they realize it? Especially legacy organizations, organizations Mm. that have been around a long time. They got all those barnacles. They've got tons of barnacles. Tons and tons. Yeah. I like that image. That's so true. It's just the barnacles grow and then you got to, you, you what do gotta, they do? They, it's they, the bottom of the boat. You well, scrape you them off. You take the boat re- out of the water and you, you actually, yes. like, you, you know, it, it's very completely re- completely strip the wood yes. off and then re and redo it. But yeah, the, 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 the inkling that the platform is on fire, like sometimes, sometimes our work. So we, we have an introductory sub project and the, the the only objective of that work from our perspective is to move the client from precognition to cognition. You so, hear that guys, they've got a lead product. Yeah. Keep going. So precognition <laughs> to cognition. Yep. So you, you need to bring them to the place where there is enough self-awareness to know that this work has to be done. And, and it's the kind of work that if you're oblivious, you don't, you know, you're just, well, what's that for? I don't know. Why would I need that? Um, my salespeople are great. Tell us a little bit about that. What is that? How do you how do you pitch that? Like, what are they going to get at the end? Well, we essentially it's a it's our diagnostic work. So we do offer like don't propose the the full you know three sixty. It's just let's do this diagnostic workshop. It'll cost you whatever fifteen thousand dollars, or if you buy the DIY version, you know, much less than that. But that kind of and then when they can't do it, right? When they when they're they're, they're asking, we're asking these questions that seem very basic and they don't have an answer and they can't agree. Then all of a sudden their sort of self-awareness of the nature and depth of the issue emerges. And then they, then they say, okay, right. Mm. So, so then, then you're, then you're at the point, once you've reached cognition, you can begin to make a plan. So it's a necessary sort of pre-planning activity to, kind of expose the the nature of the situation that the, you know, a lot of organizations are not really self-aware about this. They don't really understand these They have no background in this and that's not what they were hired to do. No. Or they're sales driven and very good at sales and think that sales can get them to the promised Mm. land. And they don't realize that you can't take a sales mentality and sort of pump it into a marketing effort and expect that to yield what you think it will. And you know that that's also another another situation. Very often, especially well-established organizations are are successful as far as sales can get them, but they need to kind of learn the higher standards in terms of focus and segmentation and the, who the market is, who our most natural customer is, because you you can't convince anybody 
you have to work with what's already there in their minds when you're in a marketing engagement. And for that, you need to understand the customer. So marketing, in my view, is, is customer understanding applied. So that whole customer insight aspect, that, can, that taking and looking at us as, as we are seen or as we can be understood from the outside is, is all a very necessary uh, precondition to, to effective marketing and never done if you've only operated in a sales in a sales mode. So are you saying that great sales people or sales teams can effectively hide an underlying oh, yes. issue for a very oh, long yes. time because okay. revenue, well, there's no problem because there's revenue, Just put but more, anytime put more sales effort on that. And, right. Yes. But, but at, at a certain point, either yeah. you'll want to grow beyond what the sales team can do, and then you have to go to marketing, and that's when you find out there are diminishing returns, right? Yes. Or Absolutely. something happens with your sales, and then you go, "Wait a second, why isn't this working?" And you then you realize that this is mm-hmm. the Sale, problem. Sales generally can 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 prove that you actually have a good product, right? You can so you're at, you're you know recidivism client recidivism and and an effective effective sales tools can get you so far but they but they cannot transform your market share that's the uh, that's the purview of of branding and up uh, and brand sort of effectively brand supported marketing so if you want to make that kind of a transition where you're really sort of changing the the way you're perceived in the world then you've got to do this other work and it's much harder than just pumping energy into sales. And if I may, I think that these are the same principles applied to my listeners. You know, there's there's a, a oh, yeah. first leg of your business where it's all sales. It's one-to-one, it's network. That's what networking is. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. You know, you can do the cold calls, plenty of people online or marketing that you don't need content, you don't need branding, just get on the phone and yep. sell. Yep. And that can get you somewhere, yep. but it's not, it doesn't have staying power. It's not long lasting. And that's why you have to do the underlying brand work yeah. so you can do the marketing work so that you actually have staying power in the market and can start attracting people and not just relying on sales, which nobody wants to do. Sales requires just pounding the pavement all the time. Yeah. And, and that's not sustainable. I mean, some people sustain it for surprisingly long time, but. <laughs> well, some people are natural salespeople and, and, it, and it's really true. hard. It's really hard for salespeople to understand this because it's so limiting. It's mm-hmm. so reductive that it's that it's that it's baffling because it's an entirely different mode from sales. You know, you think of sales and marketing in this one bucket, but they're not. They're they're entirely different operational modes because they're dealing with two systems, two different systems in the mind. And we can do a whole thing on that. Yeah. We... <laughs> no, we should <laughs> Well, yeah, we can actually talk about your expertise next time we come on here about sales and marketing because I I love to tell people if you do if you do a good job at your branding and marketing, you don't have to ever sell again, which yeah, is what right. I like to do because I don't like to sell. And most people don't unless you're a salesperson, in which mm-hmm. case you would never find me because you're just selling, <laughs> selling left and right and having no problems. And now that you've heard James speak on this and you know that he knows what he's talking about and he's backing me up, how important it is Absolutely. to do your brand, um, brand strategy and understand who you are and why people should hire you. And James, do you have anything that you offer that can help maybe smaller organizations, you know, like a couple of people who are not quite at that level to do all that research that you're talking about? Yep. So 
we did develop a sort of a productized version of our key deliverable. One of the things that we do as the diagnostic for all the organizations, whether you're sort of five employees or 5,000 employees, is a brand pyramid. We have our own version of the brand pyramid, and we've essentially bottled the how-to with our sort of 23 years of doing this, and we put it into a kind of a little booklet and a series of videos that helps you structure, execute, and kind of build for your, for your own organization a robust brand pyramid. And that is designed for businesses that are too small to engage us. They don't have, you know, $50,000, to, $80,000 to run through that with the rounds of research and, and, and what we would normally do. But instead, to get that same foundational tool with what I would regard as a totally industry-level result by doing it on your own with consulting time from us. Yeah, we do have that. Oh, gotcha. Okay, well, perfect. Because now I actually, that expands the people that I might send your way. Oh, well, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing. And thank Very you for good. thank you for coming, James. Great uh, to talk wonderful. To you. Thanks to be thanks for being letting me hang out with you for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Spend a few heartbeats. I know. It's been a I'm I'm glad we finally caught up. Thanks, James. Have a good one. If you're part of a small organization or nonprofit that has just a few people and you need branding help, it can be really hard to know who to trust. And the people who can really help you, like James, are usually very expensive and out of your budget. So I highly recommend that you go check out his tools. James made some specifically for you guys. They're at tronviggroup.com backslash brand dash strategy dash tutorial. I will put that link in the show notes. Also, if you know other entrepreneurs who struggle to put their business in its place and could benefit from hanging out with us, please share this podcast with them. Hard work can only take you so far. It's how you show up in your business that really makes the difference. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. Taking inspiration from James today, what barnacles have you accumulated on the bottom of your ship lately that you can scrape off? What processes, softwares, product offerings, or tasks have you been doing for a while that aren't moving the needle for you anymore that you could get rid of? It's almost 2021, and it is a perfect time to start decluttering for the new year and making space for badass business building activities that will serve you and your goals moving forward. Focus is your friend. And I find so many people are overwhelmed in their business because they have so much to do when actually most of their activities aren't moving the needle forward at all. In fact, I also find that lack of focus and wasted time is the biggest reason why most business owners are unable to pass that six-figure mark in their business, that golden six-figure mark. Well, I decided to do something about it. That's why I launched a new program just for you. If you're somebody who is struggling to get past that $100,000 mark, I made a program for you called Make Six Figures Your Biatch in 2021. It's simple. Time to strip away all the time-wasting activities and only focus on the couple of things that are going to get you six figures next year. 
If you want more information on that, email me at pia at piasilva.com with the subject line, I want six figures, and I'll send you more info. Or I will link to the application in the show notes. Focus, guys, because that is definitely a good next step if you want to show your business who's boss.